Good to be with you guys. We're going to talk about something that is essential to mankind and society. Uh, and ever since God instituted it, it has been a major point of discussion. Marriage affects every aspect of our society. And the subject of divorce in light of marriage has widespread implications. So we're going to look at those this morning. You know, as I was reading through this text, something that a few years ago would have been a simple elementary reading and would probably not be too controversial of a sermon, today we might be dealing with the most incendiary topic in all of popular culture. And I just want to set this up for you because we're going to deal with three main principles in this text. Strike one, the sanctity of marriage. Not a very popular topic in our culture and in the world around us. Strike two, the exclusivity of marriage between a man and a woman. Based on, strike three, the creation order of the sexes. Uh, right now, if I were to say this publicly and if I had a Twitter account or if I cared, I'd probably be canceled for it. Um, it probably will not be long before saying these things publicly could mean fines and jail time. Seriously. But I think it's the last one. You know, as we get to further into God's design for marriage, if you have to attack marriage, if you have to attack what God has designed for man and woman, you have to attack God's ordered design. And this is blasphemy of the highest order in our national religion. And our national religion is sexual inclusivity. That's what it is. This is what we celebrate. If you don't believe me, watch anything put out by yeah, Netflix, Prime, you, everything. How many adulteries do we see throughout the week as just normal way of life? And all sexual practices are permissible unless they are conditional. Then it is hateful. So, the, the traditional is now hateful. Uh, we're going to get into it. And so what we're going to discuss this morning is we're going to discuss the distortion and controversy surrounding marriage and divorce by the Pharisees, but also in our own world. But I don't just want to do that. I also want to encourage and challenge those of us who are married, and many of us uh, who will be married soon, to view marriage and divorce as Jesus does. And so uh, we're going to look at God's created order, God's plan for marriage, God's design for the sexes, so that we can understand Jesus' teaching on divorce in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? Well, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God joined, God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, forgive our hard hearts. Forgive how often we have approached all of your design selfishly, especially marriage. We desire to seek our pleasure, our comfort, to have our needs met, and often spend little time contemplating what glorifies you what you have designed, what you require of us. Lord, I ask that this morning as we open your word that your spirit would work within us, transform hearts and minds that we may submit to you. And for those out there right now who are not married and do not see marriage on the future or maybe it's been a long time since they've been married and there's still a lot of hurt there and to think that There's nothing in here that applies to me. Lord, that we would see every word that that appears in Scripture as living and active. That it is your design in creation that points us to your Son and His church. And that is your faithfulness as our bridegroom that is our hope and our security. Even when our own spouses or loved ones fail us. Lord, we ask that you would bless this time in your word, that we would not just be hearers, but doers also, and do everything to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. Amen. So, in this second half of Mark, as we've been saying the past couple weeks, Jesus is walking, talking, teaching, he's left his Galilean ministry behind, he is leaving Galilee, the northern region, heading south into Judea. This is where we find ourselves in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, uh, surrounding Jerusalem, beyond the Jordan, so looking to the east. And the crowds gathered around him again. So as he slowly makes his migration toward the Passover, and ultimately to the Lord's Supper and to the cross, people are still coming to him. And as his custom, he's, he's teaching them. And um, now we kind of get to the content of the teaching. And so we don't know what he was teaching about. I would love to be there. I would love to just sit and hear Jesus preach in, uh, in its full context. But we know there must have been some interaction because there was plenty of interchanges where the Pharisees and others would come and ask questions. So Jesus may teach on something. Maybe he was teaching on marriage. We don't know. But the question comes up from the Pharisees. And as we've seen before, the Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day. They weren't really concerned with political power. They were concerned with religious power. They held the interpretation of of Moses. They were the ones who could rightly interpret the law. But as we're going to see in a moment, they weren't even unified amongst themselves. There were different sects among the Pharisees. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but I want to look at the question first. So the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the first thing we want to see is that whenever the truth is taught, 
without question, not long after, someone will come along who wants to distort it. Whenever God's truth is taught, there will always be distortion not far beyond. So the first thing we see in their emphasis, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They didn't ask, how do we create stronger marriages in Israel? How do we protect marriage? It is, how can we get out of it? It shows their low view of marriage. Their concern is not to protect it, but when can we pull the ripcord? This is kind of the equivalent of a prenup. You know, at what point can I guard myself and get out of this with the least amount of damage because I'm unhappy? And before we even dig into the question, I want you to think about how committed will you be to something when you walk in thinking, how can I get out? The worst marriage advice I hear very common in the world when people move in together or when people use God's bounds for sex in, in marriage to engage in it to try it out is, many of you have heard this maybe, that, well, if you're going to buy a car, you would test drive it first, right? First of all, I've heard guys say this is a very, this is a, a uh, very convenient line for guys, but if you're, if you're uh, comparing your girlfriend to a car, you've got some problems. Um, if you think that comparing an image bearer of God to a piece of machinery is, is a one-to-one equation, you got some problems. And if you think that you're going to approach a relationship like you approach your, your, your car, that's how often, you know, how often do we trade in cars? Uh, these are typically from guys who, who lease cars, so they're two or three years in, and they, they don't see any problem with this. But so often, this is what our culture tells us, well, you've got to, you, you, you've got to kind of play around with it, but they're setting themselves up for failure. Because if you go into it with the, with the, the out in mind, you're never going to make it through. Because just like your car, you're going to trade it out every few years. And this is kind of how the um, Pharisees are approaching this. But there's something deeper underneath, uh, underneath this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And this is where the culture of the day is helpful. Because we don't understand this. None of us have ever been a Pharisee. Um, some of us have act pharisaical. But none of us have been a Pharisee. None of us have been in these debates, b- debates between the Pharisees. And there were several sects. The two most powerful of them, I want to show you a, a quote from the, the Mishnah in a moment. As we remember, the Mishnah is the oral commentary, or the, the oral law that went alongside of inspired scripture that they began to held higher than the scripture. And so the, the rabbis would give uh, their commentary on the scriptures themselves, and you'd get the different schools of thought in this. And so there's a debate amongst the sects, and so I think uh, Matthew 19, who's the other, para, the other um, parallel of this passage, is helpful. Really, just very quickly, in Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees came up and said and to test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is the key to understanding this passage. Now you got to remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, so he digs further into the Jewish controversy of the, of the time. Mark is writing to a Greek audience in Rome, so their concerns are not as th- the same as Matthew. For any cause, this is important. Because the Pharisees, one school is very conservative, 
they would only limit divorce to sexual immorality. The other one, as we're going to see in Deuteronomy 24 in just a moment, they would take this indecency that Moses says as anything. Anything. And before I show you the, the quote, I, I want to set this up. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I have to bring you back into the culture for us to understand all this. In those days, women did not have property rights. Women typically did not have the right to, to divorce. Every, all of the authority, all the responsibility, and all the discretion of the marriage was put on the men. When you read the, the Mishnah, uh, there's a lot of pages on women, but very, very few on women's rights, the expectations for men toward women. It is almost completely on the expectation of women toward men. So they put the emphasis on the man here, and this is important in the way that Jesus responds. And he could divorce her for any reason if she didn't please him. There are some of the extreme uh, Pharisee, the Pharisaical teachers will say if she oversalts his food, he can divorce her because that is unpleasing. Yes. Uh, the, the most common reason was if she couldn't bear children. But I want to show you what one of these, these um, debates here. So here's the test that they are putting before him. What's really going on is, which side do you fall on, Jesus? Here's a, here's a glimpse into the, the, the pharisaical politics. It'll be up on the screen. So this is a quote from the Mishnah. This was the oral tradition in place at the time of Jesus. It was written down, finally, about a uh, about hundred years after the life of Jesus. But this was common at the time of Jesus. The school of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. So they interpret Deuteronomy 24.1, we'll get there in a moment, as uh, sexual indecency, unchastity. But the more liberal school, the school of Hillel says, he, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. A rabbi, our Akiba, says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she found no favor in his eyes. Now it goes on and on and on like this. There are pages and pages of these debates within the Mishnah and even more in the Talmud. I'm just sharing one with you. So I want you to get the picture. Much like today, they were, it, divorce was a common thing. But the Pharisees are testing Jesus, but they're, they're also trying to figure out which camp he falls in in the teachers. But look how Jesus responds. Verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? They're trying to test the boundaries of their authority. Jesus' response comes from the authority. The Word of God. What did Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, command you? Before we go on to what he responds, I love that Jesus is a master of, well, everything. Um, but he's a master of weighing selfish questions against the Word of God and getting to the heart intent. This is a great lesson for us. Because when someone challenges something, our sinful response is to try to defend it, to try to pounce on it. We should just do what Jesus does. What does the Word say? Because at that point, if you point them to Scripture, they're arguing with God and not you. And you'd rather have them have that argument than for you to have to convince them in their own strength. It's another way we see Jesus' wisdom here. What did Moses command you? Here's how they respond. 
And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This is technically true, but they missed the point. Deuteronomy 24.1 will be up on the screen. And I want to give you the context of that passage, because if you read it, it is very easily to get misconstrued. The important part, Deuteronomy 24.1, is the first half of the verse. Because this is all one long run-on sentence, really, the, the first four verses. Moses says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. That's the debate, right there. Because he has found some indecency in her. What does indecency mean? Like most legalists and proof texters do, they stop where they want to make their point. But if you keep reading, and he was on to say, and he, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house and she becomes another man's wife and another man's wife and her former husband can't take her back after she has been defiled. You're like, oh, wait a second. This is a raw deal for the wife here. What's going on? The other key in here, go down to verse 4. After she has been defiled. What is at place here? It is sexual purity. That's the indecency that Moses is speaking of. That if he finds that she has slept with another man, then she can, he can send her off because she has been defiled. And that's why he can't take her back. Not just to shame the woman, but this is a woman who has committed adultery. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance if you bring back this woman who has committed abomination. Moses is not talking about for any reason. This indecency is a defilement. A defilement of the marriage covenant. Defilement of the marriage bed. This is, this is key to understanding this entire debate. And we'll look at more in Matthew in just a moment. So we're dealing with sexual purity. Not just indecency for any means. So, Pharisees could have easily solved this debate if they just kept reading. And most people who have heretical thoughts could solve the debate if they just kept reading. But they don't. They stop where they want to stop. And so Jesus knows that. Verse 4. Back in Mark now. And they said... Oh yeah, we looked at verse 4. Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of. Now, they speak selectively. Well, Moses said that we're allowed to write a certificate of divorce. Not bringing the whole picture. He speaks authoritatively. He is the authority on it. The Word made flesh now speaks in a way. Because of your hard heart, He wrote you this commandment. And so they ask this technical question, seeing how they can get out of it. But I love that Jesus always gets straight to the heart. You're asking the wrong question. You are asking this out of a hardness of heart so you can seem righteous. But Jesus cares about righteous intent. Not just outward righteousness. What is the proper thing to do? Where is your heart in this? Because he knows how selfish they are. And so let's look at the topic of divorce for a moment. Now that we know where they're coming from, what Jesus is directing, addressing. Let's be clear. Divorce is only in place because of sin. 
If there was no sin, there would be no divorce. That's it. If it weren't for hard and wicked hearts, there would be no divorce. The Pharisees need to be reminded of that fact. This is not plan A. This is an important principle for you to understand biblically. Many things in the Bible, slavery being another one of them, they are tolerated, not celebrated. Divorce is tolerated, not celebrated. The Bible makes provision and concession for sin, but that is not the intention. The Bible makes provision and concession because of sin, but that is not God's intention. And so if we look at the concession as the ideal instead of the intention, you're going to completely miss the point. Everybody with me? Okay. But... Jesus goes on. We have to get that essential distinction. Now, after addressing the concession, he goes to the intention in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Why does he have to start here? He could have just addressed Moses, but you've got to go back further. To understand Moses, to understand the law, you have to understand God's design in creation. You must understand its foundation. I tell you, when we talk about marriage, everything you need to know about marriage, you can find in Genesis 1 through 3. God's design, how it's supposed to work, and how it fell apart, and everything that is going to go wrong. Genesis 1 through 3. Jesus goes right back to the beginning. You're missing the point, so I've got to take you back to, to elementary school. I've got to take you back to step one. From the beginning of creation, God made. So we're going to speak about the creation order. The two most important phrases in this passage contain the word God. God made. Before you can understand divorce, before you can even ask me about that, you have to understand male and femaleness rightly. God made them male and female. So I can't believe I actually have to say this. What does this mean, God made them male and female? God made them male and female. God made them male and female. That's it. It's crazy that that's the most controversial, in our day, that's the most controversial thing I'm going to say all morning. God made them male and female. That's insane. But if you disagree with this, repent. Your problem is with God, not me. And if you approve of people who disagree with this, repent. Because as Paul says in Romans 1, their condemnation is on you. Do not be brought into the foolishness of the world that wants to turn upside down the very foundation of who we are. That's not even the point of the sermon. That's a throwaway line. God made them male, not throwaway line. It's an essential line, but it's outside the point. But in our day, we have to say it. You get it? Any questions on that? Refer back to the text. Any questions on that? Refer back to Genesis 2. Any questions on that? God help you. Uh, Verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Therefore, or because of this, why? Because of this, this maleness and this femaleness, the way that, we have, that God has, has created them perfectly to be compatible with one another, 
to relate to one another, to fit together with one another, both emotionally, mentally, and physically. This is how God has designed it. Because of this design, the two meant to be together, the complementary pieces, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now remember, the Pharisees asked the question, is it right for, his, for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds, here's what a man should do. Here's what's required. Of, you're asking the wrong question. What is required of a man in Scripture? To leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The, the, the King James is to cleave here. But the Greek word is interesting. It means to be yoked together, to be tied together. You hold fast because you are held fast. Uh, many of you have never, never driven a yoke of oxen. But what it is, it's, the under, it's like uh, the uh, McDonald's logo over two ox. And they are linked together. They are, they are tied together. And so when one moves, the other moves. There is no separating two oxen who are yoked together. This is the language for hold fast. You hold fast to your wife because you are held fast by this yoke. And we will get to the authority of that yoke in a moment. When one ox moves, the other moves. You can't help it. This is why it is absolutely necessary that you are united with a believer. Someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. When we've got a lot of young couples who are getting married soon, which is great, a great thing. And when they come to me and ask, and I'm glad that they do, what should I look for in a spouse? How should I approach these things? First of all, look for someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Step one, if they love you more than they love Jesus, you've both got a problem. Because one of you is going to be God and the other of you is going to be disappointed. Hold fast to Christ. And if you love him well, you will love your, your spouse well. If you understand the gospel in our corporate prayer before service, we read Ephesians 5. Paul telling us this whole mystery is Christ in the church. If you understand what your Savior did for you, if you understand that he laid down his life for you, his bride, I've said this before, men is the only time it is acceptable to be pictured in a wedding dress. But we are the bride of Christ. And it is a beautiful thing to be spotless. He laid down his life for us that we, we might be pure and white and gleaming before his sight. But he took on flesh and died for us. If we understand that men and how tightly he holds on to us, we know the grave responsibility it is to hold on to our wives and to love them well and to lay down our lives for our wives. And women, if you know what it means, you know more than we do what it means to be a bride and know that you are loved and that you are brought in by a righteous bridegroom who wants to make you fit for himself and tie you to himself forever. And it is a joy to submit to him because he is a loving leader. Then you can lovingly submit to your husband. And if he is leading well, Laying down his life for you, he is a joy to submit to. And if she lays down her, if she submits her life, she is a joy to lead. But neither one of you are doing it selfishly. You hold fast and you cling to one another because Christ has held you fast to him. Without the gospel, 
what picture do we have for a successful marriage? Without the gospel, what view do we have of any, of any success or, or longevity? But if you understand that no one can snatch you out of, his, out of his hand, he is held fast to you, then you know what it means to hold fast to your spouse. Because as patient as Jesus is with you in your sin, you should understand what it means to be patient with that fallen man or woman who lays next to you every night in their sin. Amen? Jesus is doing one more thing here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Why are the father and mother brought in, in here? He's showing that now you should cling to her like you clung to your parents. This is now your new family. This is now your new union. Before you were under your parents' roof, they were your identity. Now, this is your new family. You cling to her. You leave them, figuratively speaking, literally, I hope so, leave them and cleave to your wife. This is your new family, your new priority. Above your biological family. Why? Verse 8. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. She is not just your new family, but your new flesh. Your very body. Desire for divorce is so grievous, it shows a hardness of heart because it is hating of your own flesh. What God brought together, as we're going to see in the next verse, He made you to be one. And to hate your own flesh is what drives divorce. But if you don't understand the gospel, how can you understand that? Of course, you'll be flipping about marriage. Last week, we looked at if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it out. Because it is better to be without that than to sin and be thrown in hell. This week, we're talking about divorce a desire to cut off your own arm because of sin. To cut off your own flesh because of sin. The next statement brings all this together. Verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When the husband joins the wife, who actually does the joining? The Pharisees wanted to solidify the extent of the husband's authority. But Jesus goes above their heads, our heads, men, to the authority, our head, Christ, what God has joined. Again, the two most important phrases in this passage contain the word God. From the beginning of creation, God made them. What therefore God has joined together. God, creator and recreator. Marriage is a small glimpse of God's plan of recreation. What was severed at the fall, brought together in Christ to glorify Him. Yes, marriage is new family and new flesh because God said so. Before we can even talk about divorce, we've got to get here. We've got to understand the basis. I think a lot of people 
want to get right to the argument point before even setting the foundation. When you want to, when you want to lay a biblical argument, start with the foundation. Begin at creation. Go to the fall. Look at redemption. Then only and then can you see the ideal in consummation. This is what Jesus does, and we learn from him. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. This is why Christians hold marriage so high. We have a solid theology, God words of marriage. We see marriage because of God. We see God in it. We observe it and we obey it for God's glory. Our marriage doctrine comes from our theology. These two are not separate. What God has joined together. I want you to think back for a moment. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. How much of a role did Adam and Eve play in what they did other than their sin? God created them. God created him. God saw that it wasn't good that he was alone. God created her to complement him, brought the two together, gave them a desire for one another, gave them union, gave them expectation. God instituted and initiated all of that. Is there any difference now? Is God any less sovereign now than he was then? We must see this, that if you are to be wed and if you are married, it is because God brought you together. He joined you. Only he can separate you, and that is by death. But here's where the problem lies. The world views this as a social construct. Or what a social construct is, is something that is agreed upon by society. Something of men, for men, to be decided by men to shape it how men would like. And if we're still on the whole male and female thing, I'm referring to women too. Men is in humankind. A social construct is what we decide it should be. And so since man created it, since man is over it, man can do with it what he pleases. Not a divine union. It is a divine construct. God instituted it. When a society has a low view of marriage, there are far-reaching impacts. When marriage is not upheld, when divorce is rampant, it affects children, it affects societies, it affects finances. And this is, we know this biblically, but statistically this is consistent. A lot of you know that I did jail ministry for a couple years, and when we had to go through all of our certifications and go through uh, the, the training and everything, they, they brought us through the, the statistics of men in prison, every major category, rape, murder, theft, uh, you name it, 85% and up of them came from single parent, single, excuse me, uh, single parent homes without a father in the home. In those two years, I spoke with hundreds of men. Maybe two had good relationships with their fathers. Very few even knew their fathers. If you understand and see God's plan, you can see why this is so important. Because if you don't have the mother and father together under God directing children, this is what happens. This is God's design. It's why it's so important. And we have to know how to address these things, to defend these things, to go to Scripture with them. Because when you get outside of God's design, this is what happens. 
if you are a rapist or a child molester, it is almost 98% true that you did not have a good relationship with your father. This is why marriage is important. I want you to recap before we get into Jesus' application here in the next few verses. First, God created. Start with God. Male and female. To be husband and wife. To be one flesh. Joined by God. Created by God. Upheld by God. To His glory. For our flourishing. So here's the, the, the basis that Jesus sets. Now when the disciples get into the home... We don't know where the home was. Typically, Jesus kind of had some home base where he would stay with his followers on the, on the way. Uh, they, left, they left Capernaum and on the way down to Jerusalem. And so they begin to ask him more questions about this. Again, I'd love to hear the disciples' questions because I'm sure there's some good comedic material in there. Um, but he responds to them with two complimentary phrases. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Strong language here. Now, I didn't define it earlier, but I want to define it here. The word adultery in the Greek combines two words, from and to loose, to untie. When you, there's, when you see it in Deuteronomy, uh, divorce is usually accompanied by sending away. You are untying, you are unloosing from you what God has tied together. What God has joined, you are unjoining and you are sending away. This is what divorce is. And Jesus is driving home the gravity of the marriage covenant. Now remember, I told you that Matthew is writing from a Jewish perspective. So I want to look at Matthew 19 again. So when we look at these two phrases, because this is caught up a lot of people on how do we view divorce? How do we review remarriage? I think Matthew 19 is helpful here, and it brings together everything that we've been saying so far. Matthew 19, I want to read 8 and 9, and then we'll be up on the screen as well. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. This is important. Notice he speaks in the plural here. He knows these, these, these wicked men are just looking for an out. Divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He tells them this is not God's intent. This is not the ideal. You are to look to the ideal, not to the concession. And he goes on. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, same occurrence, Matthew just adds this, this detail. For the Pharisees, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Except for sexual immorality. Now why sexual immorality? Do you, does anyone know how the marriage was consummated, where we get the word consummation from? It's not when you put the ring on the finger and say, I do. There's another exchange that, 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 that happens. And the rest of the wedding party would wait outside the tent to make sure that the exchange happened. Then the marriage was consummated. That's why sexual immorality is, is the 
breaker, the defiler of the marriage covenant. Because if sex, the physical act of intimacy, is the consummation and the continuation of the marriage, the, the physical union that, that signifies the spiritual, when you break the physical union, when you defile the consummation of the marriage, you have defiled the marriage. This is why it's the only time that Jesus uh, advocate or will allow divorce in Moses' teaching, but also in his. So there's a few things to note here in this verse in Mark. So he has these, these two parallels. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. First principle here. The one who defiles the marriage bed first is the adulterer. Whether if it's infidelity within the marriage or if it's divorce to, def- to be defiled with someone else. That is the, the, the adulterer. And this is actually a great protection for the wife. Because up to this, the, this point, a man could do whatever he wanted. But what Jesus does here is he makes the unfaithfulness of the husband toward their union equal to adultery. If she is faithful and he leaves her, he is the adulterer. This is a big deal for women in those days. And this is a big deal as well because this is also a great advancement because the rabbis would have never spoken like this. They would have never said, and if she divorces her husband, they wouldn't allow it. They wouldn't hear of it. Now, Jesus is showing that the, women's, the woman's right is equal to her husband. If she has an unfaithful husband, she has a right to divorce him. But if she divorces him for another reason, and many scholars think that, this, that Mark included this because he was writing to a Roman audience. And uh, in Rome, among the, 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 the Gentiles, uh, divorce was a lot more common among women than it was in Hebrew circles. Uh, not sure if that's the case or not. The last thing I want you to see in summation, and then I've got a few thoughts in, in conclusion. Jesus answers the question. Yes, divorce is technically legal, but only in extreme cases. Otherwise, you're breaking the seventh commandment. And you are defiling and abominating the plan of God for marriage. God's plan from the beginning Man and woman to be united together so that when Christ comes along and we see the church, we see it in its fullness. We see it in its, in its perfect outworking. So I want to conclude with three kinds of means of uh, application here. One, make sure we understand marriage biblically. Make sure those of you who are married those of you who are planning on being married, those of you who are moving toward marriage, make sure you have a biblical view of marriage. Every law that is in place, including the law on divorce, is in place because of sin. And it is a concession. We should be concerned with God's ideal and go to that standard, not to lower ourselves to God's concession or God's provision that He made because of sin. Look to the ideal of how God designed marriage, starting with how God created men and women. God's intention for His people should be our main concern. 
And marriage is our prime example on that. Let us be careful that we're not asking, what can I get away with? What are my rights? At what point can I divorce? But rather, what is God's standard? What is God's design? What can I do to uphold God's law? That should be our focus. Not our way out, but, our, but how do we work through our own sinfulness in God's design for marriage. Number two, this needs to be said as often as it can be said. Beware of sexual temptation. Whether you're David or Solomon or Ravi Zacharias or fill in the blank. Beware of sexual temptation. Especially men. The book of Proverbs was written for young men. You read Proverbs 7. The adulterous woman who does everything she can to glance at you, to call to you, to put perfume on, to make herself appealing to you, to draw you in. This is our enemy's design for sexual temptation. And men, it is a very real and present problem. And more marriages are ruined by sexual temptation. And it's not always by a physical person. But the, like, last, like we saw last week, if your hand, your feet, or your eye causes you to sin, if you see that image, and you walk toward that image, and you reach out with your hand, you've brought death into your life. More marriages are severed by that, by a physical desire to be pleased somewhere else instead of holding fast to the wife of your youth and anything else. There's a big lesson in this here. We must guard ourselves against that and guard others. Because whether we care to admit it or not, adultery is our national pastime now. It is. It's the goal of everyone out there, whether it's in the action or just in the imagination. Lastly, I know it's going to hit close to home and I want to kind of end on some encouragement. I know, I know many of you have been affected by or have been divorced. And so there's a lot of, a lot of debate among how, on how the church should view divorce and um, a lot of hurt, obviously. When marriages are broken, families are affected, so I want to say a couple things. First, I think that um, we need to take Jesus at his word. Jesus is deadly serious on his teaching on marriage. His, firm, his stance is, is firm, and I need to say clearly, there is no divorce without sin. There is no well-meaning divorce. It is always driven by sin. It is never a good thing. However, for the believer, there is no sin without grace. For the believer, there is no sin without forgiveness. For the believer, every one of our sins, and if you have been divorced, whether it was your sin or someone else's sin, it drives us to the cross. It drives us to our need for reconciliation in Him. And praise God that He is our bridegroom who is faithful when we have not been faithful. Because whether you have been divorced on paper or not, you have an adulterous heart every day that desires things that are not your God. We are an unfaithful bride. 
that if it were not for him, would have heart and dead hearts. But praise God that the Father sent the Son to lay down his life for us, and the Son sent the Spirit to give us new hearts that we might be his spotless bride. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. Our maker and our redeemer. We go back to the beginning and you made us male and female. You created us in your image that we might glorify you. Not long after that, we in Adam sinned. Hating your commandments and listening to lies, we hoard after the promises of our enemy. And before the coming of your son, we continued in the desires of our hearts that are hard and wicked. But because of your Son, we are given new life and new hearts, that we might be brought to new life, that we might be wedded to him. And we look forward to the day of our consummation. We have been betrothed. We are sealed with the bride price that is paid for our sin. that we might be given to our husband, spotless, unblemished. And we in Christ, we put our faith in Him because we are now His. And one day we will see Him as He is in our consummation of the great wedding feast where the wine that He drank with His disciples we will drink again in glory. A bride and her husband Lord, I pray for the believers here that you strengthen marriages, that you remind us of the gospel, that you remind us of your created order. I pray for those who do not know you here. That they would know that they need you. That they are an adulteress whose heart runs after everything but you and is in need of a new heart. and only can be known by faith in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name I pray. Amen.